0: Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people, and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here in the afternoon sunshine, long shadows cast over the hills above. Witherp Mill with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark.
1: Oh, hello, David. It's been a little bit of a while. It's been three weeks, if not more, since we last got together. It's the highlight of my fortnight, normally. Oh, goodness. It's it's wonderful to be in the fells, though. It is, isn't
0: it? Yes, we should apologise for delaying this podcast because of
1: the weather, mainly, Mark. It's been absolutely horrendous. And it's been the most... Crazily mild autumn. Normally, like yesterday, I didn't go up Great Gable. It would have been Remembrance Sunday uh, celebration. And uh, normally it's snowy and frosty, and of course it wasn't. Anyway, we are here today in this
0: remarkably lovely valley mark. I'm very fond of it here. It's
1: famous for Wainwright's illusion. Uh, If you were up on Lingfell, for example, which is behind where we are looking from now you get this view with Skidder rising at the head of this valley. Forgetting, of course, there's a great gulf and bassinthwaite in between. But today, that isn't pertaining. No, it's a bit cloudy, isn't it,
0: Uh, in the far distance there. We can't see Skidder yet. Put us on the map for any listeners who don't quite know where we are, Mark.
1: Oh, the Wither Valley, well, it's near Embleton, which is on the A66 approaching Cockermouth, if you're going west from Keswick. West of the Winlatter forest area, so it's the beginnings of the fells if you're coming from Cockermouth. And we're going up onto Sail Fell.
0: Sail Fell, very
1: much Cockermouth's Fell, uh, a
0: favoured fell for many in areas like Workington as well. Great outlook, and uh, one of my favourite walks. This actually, I don't live too far away from here. Beautiful circular walk, much of which we're doing today, which visits uh, some of the loveliest woodland uh, that i know of locally a gorgeous ruined old church so i'm very much looking forward to today's walk and what are we talking about it's all about the roots of the landscape we're
1: talking about geology
0: yes we've long discussed having a podcast dedicated to geology mark because you're right it's the skeleton of the land isn't it at root it explains everything that we see around us here and we hadn't quite found the right guest until you went to a talk a couple of weeks ago and you met today's guest, who
1: is... (laughs) I went to the Borderlands Book Festival and I had the joy of listening to uh, Bruce Yardley and our guest for today, Ian Francis, from Maryport.
0: Right, well, I can see Ian there just on that lovely greenway that leads off the road that terminates a little bit further at the farm. Let's go and meet Ian...
1: Well, we're here in this gorgeous valley, the Withup Valley, with Withup Beck tinkling below us. Uh, There's oak trees and gorse directly above us, Uh, the wind. The fells, you can see Ling Fell, Broom Fell, and just see the top of Lord's Seat. It's a gorgeous valley, and uh, Withup, it means the Withy Valley, so it's a reference to Willow. And coincidentally, we're climbing Sail Fell which also refers to Willow, as in Salix. So we've got two references to Willow, and I'm with Ian Francis, and it's a delight to share this moment with you in the late
2: afternoon sun. It's a pleasure, and it's a gorgeous day. And Fell's a marvellous place to walk on a day like this, because although it's a relatively low fell, as you said you feel you're surrounded by other fells. So you've got fantastic views to the north and, and over to Skiro and over Bassenthwaite and right the way through to Helvellyn. So you really feel you're in the fells here.
1: You live locally now, I believe. Where do you hail yes, from?
2: Well, I, I was brought up just on the other side of Broom Fell in the Lawton Valley uh, at a little hamlet called Thackthwaite. I went to school in Lawton, primary school, and then I went to Cockermouth School. And I did geology there, which was quite unusual at the time. Not many schools offered geology, but there was um, a geology teacher there called Mr Rigby, who was renowned for talking at great length about everything other than geology. (laughs) Despite Mr Rigby, (laughs) um, I managed to um, get my geology uh, A-level. And then I went to Oxford to read geology, and I did a geology degree there, and I stayed on and did a PhD in geology as well. Living where I did, of course, surrounded by the fells, I developed an early interest in geology and rocks and mineral collecting, visiting all mines and quarries and so on. So it was quite natural that I ended up doing geology at university. In Absolutely, the end. <laughs> uh, you
1: had an inquiring mind, and in that setting, it drew you into uh, yes. ever more. Yes,
2: I think it did. And, and interestingly enough, a, a, num- a number of geologists come from this area, uh, contemporaries or near contemporaries of mine. So it was definitely a thing, you know, at that time to be interested in the rocks of your your surroundings.
1: So let's get to grips with our, our expedition. Where are we heading first of all, and what are we going to be okay. talking
2: about? Right, we're going to walk up this path to the shoulder of Sale Fell, the sort of northwestern edge of the fell, where we'll see the first good outcrops of what used to be called Skiddaw Slates and now known as the Skiddaw Group, which are the oldest rocks in the Lake District. And this is a good place to see them.
1: Well, we've come to the initial edge of Sail Fell. It's got a great view. Uh, I'm looking west. I can see towards Cockermouth. Ling Fell is very prominent over to my left. The sun has hidden itself behind a mantle of cloud, but I'm standing next to a vertical outcrop of. What well, I believe is Skidder Slate, and um, when I say vertical, it's vertically bedded. Ian, we're going back in time, and we're really going back in time we're, with this
2: rock. We are. <clears throat> we're going back a long way. These are some of the oldest rocks in England. Uh, there are some older rocks in Wales and in the Welsh borders. The oldest of the or Slates are probably about 480 million years old. Right. These ones here are probably a little bit younger than that because they're not the oldest part of the or Slate sequence, or the Skiddor Group sequence, as it's known. But yes, they're very old, and they're sedimentary rocks laid down in an ancient ocean 480 million years ago, which geologists call the Iapetus Ocean. And they're marine sediments, and they're mainly mudstones and sandstones. So you can imagine a deep ocean basin with rivers flowing off a nearby landmass, carrying in sand and mud. And these were laid down on the sea seafloor as, originally as horizontal beds of sand and mud. You can see the layers in, the, in this mudstone here. These layers may have been storm deposits or annual deposits. One thick layer a year or something like that, you know.
1: Is there life in
2: it? There is life in these rocks. Not common. Fossils are found in the Skidor group, particularly a group of uh, extinct organisms called graptolites. Occasionally other fossils have been found, like trilobites and so on, but they're not terribly fossiliferous. In the old days, when there were lots of quarries in the Skiddaw Group rocks all around Keswick in this area, there were a lot of collectors around, the quarries were active, and so there are quite large collections of graptolites in places like the Sedgwick Museum in Cambridge and in the Keswick Museum here as well. So these sediments were laid down as horizontal layers on the sea floor, and sometime around 400 million years ago, this ancient ocean closed. And two great continents, one to the south and one to the north, gradually close together at about the speed your fingernail grows. And these rocks were squeezed and contorted. Uh, and here we see they're more or less upright, the bedding's more or less upright. So that tells us that at some time in the past, probably during this period 400 million years ago, some great uh, earth movements were taking place as the two continental blocks collided.
1: You mentioned in the
2: beginning about the
1: various geologists who came from your valley and this general area. But if we look in context with what you're talking about now, just over the hill, uh, there was a Jonathan Otley. He was a significant character who
2: analysed this landscape in a new way. Yes. Uh, He was an extraordinary character. He was born near Luffrig Tarn, in relatively humble background, in uh, 1766. He got a reasonably good education as a boy, so he was literate. He moved to Keswick at the age of 25 and set up a clock-and-watch-making and and repairing business uh, just off-market place in uh, Kingshead Yard, I think it's called. The shop where he worked is still there with a plaque if you live in Keswick, I'm sure you'll have seen it. But it was Otley who, who really laid the groundwork for all we understand about the geology of the Lake District. Until the beginning of the 19th century, geologists, they didn't call themselves geologists then, they thought of themselves as natural philosophers, came to the Lake District to admire the scenery. They'd collect rocks, collect minerals, perhaps collect fossils and take them back and put them in their curiosity cabinets. But Otley had an inquiring mind in and he was a bit of a synthesizer. He was able to look at the Lake District as a whole and... Rather than just look at individual rocks, he deciphered the basic structure of the Lake District, which is that in the north you've got what he called clay slates, which we now call the skiddaw Group, which are these grey rocks we're looking at here. He then recognised a second group of rocks, which he called greenstones or porphyries, and he recognised these as occupying the central belt of the Lake District, the really high, rugged fells from Ennerdale right the way over to, to Horswater. And a third group of rocks he recognised, and more sedimentary rocks, a bit like these we're looking at here, in the south of the lakes, which he called Grey Wackies. Not only did he recognise that there were these three distinct categories of rock, he also recognised that one lay on top of the other in terms of age. So he recognised that the Skidog group was the oldest, on top of that lay the volcanic rock, the rocks he called the greenstones. And then on top of those, younger still, was the sequence of rocks he called the Grey Wackies, which we see around Coniston Water and Windermere, and we now know as the Windermere Group, or the Windermere Supergroup. Nothing has really changed in our understanding of the basic structure of the Lake District since that time.
1: While well, Cumming gets this outcrop, we've got a first grasp at the three great bones of this landscape. So we'll go a bit further up the fell now. Because there's quite a stiff breeze, we've come over the brow a little, onto the west side of the ridge. Uh, I'm looking down on Embleton, and Embleton Common, and over to my right I can see Binsey. The mist up to the north, towards Cripple, completely obliterates the Solway Firth altogether. But I think this, Ian, is a significant descriptive moment.
2: Yes, we're looking northwestwards here, towards Scotland, and on a clear day... Of course, we can see the Solway Firth and we can see the Galloway Hills in the background and Criffel. And I talked a bit before about how the Skiddor group was laid down in an ancient ocean called the Iapetus Ocean and how over millions of years this gradually closed as two continents moved together and how they squeezed the rocks of the Lake District. And this junction of the two continents is called the Suture Zone, which is a rather horrible term, and it runs roughly along the Solway Firth. So, in effect, we're standing... On one continent here, one ancient continent, and we're looking northwestwards towards Scotland, which actually was then a separate continent. So it is a remarkable thing that, you know, we're standing on this edge of this continent, which is called Avalonia, incidentally, looking towards another ancient continent, which is called Laurentia. Right. Between here and this Solway coast, we can see uh, some other interesting things. These lines of hills here are also Skiddow Group rocks. Right. And, and in fact, in Embleton, uh, yeah, Watch Hill, uh, Slate Fell. Uh, are also Skiddaw Group rocks. In fact, they're even older than the ones we're standing on now. They're the oldest of all the Skiddaw Group uh, sediments. But then beyond that, we see another ring of hills yep. stretching sort of westwards and southwards from Binsey. That's the Carboniferous limestone. And we can see Muta Quarry there in the distance with the, uh, the radio mast there. And so... We can see this relationship between the ancient rocks of the Lake District and the more recent rocks like the Carboniferous Limestone. We can see this relationship right the way around the edge of the Lake District. So there's like a rim of younger rocks right the way around the Lake District. And inside this rim are the ancient rocks that form the Lake District fells
1: staggering that, isn't it? It's, that, it's like a great donut uh,
2: with a, a great a solid core. Yes, exactly and what geologists believe is that at some time in the past the whole of the Lake District must have been lifted up raised up relative to the areas surrounding it. If we look at Skiddaw over there The ancient rocks that uh, make Skiddor, which are the Skiddor group, not surprisingly, there they're at 3,000 feet high, Mm -hmm. 900 metres high. To find those rocks everywhere else in the north of England, you've got to drill a deep borehole several hundred metres down to find those rocks. So obviously here they've been lifted up.
1: Elevated. Elevated
2: up. And all the younger rocks that once covered this whole area have been, over millions of years, eroded away. It was caused by hot material rising up from deep within the earth. Causing the continent to split in two, now, that rising of hot material is probably what caused the Lake District to to rise up relative to the areas around it.
1: The cause and effect, that is. Yes,
2: exactly. Yes, because the hot material is more buoyant. It's lighter, so it tends to rise up. Where it comes up under the crust, it tends to force the crust upwards. And it didn't do it anywhere else. And it didn't do it anywhere else, because it tended to happen in sort of isolated patches rather than in a huge, great area. It's
1: staggering to think that there was layers upon layers upon layers on top of Skidder.
2: Kilometres of other rocks, such as the chalk, which would have... Chalk? Chalk would have ultimately covered the whole of northern England. It's associated mainly with southeast England. Uh, But yes, this whole area would have been covered in chalk.
1: Approaching the summit, we've come up uh, a lovely grassy slope, but we've come upon a rock that certainly doesn't look... Like the Skiddo Strait I've just been looking at. And here we've got some very blocky rock, tilted at forty five degrees
2: north. and it's uh, well, it's quite different, Ian. what is it? Yes, it is different. I mean, for one thing, we can see that it's got this beautiful pink color. It's a bit weathered here, but you can still see it's pink in contrast to the gray mudstones and sandstones we saw in the Skiddow group earlier on. And the other thing to notice about it is it doesn't have any bedding, it's just a great massive lumps riven by these joints. Uh, this is an igneous rock and this particular igneous rock is called minesse. It's a, it's a variety of potassium-rich igneous rock. This exposure is known as the Sale fell Minesse. It's quite a well-known exposure. It's an igneous intrusion. It was formed from molten rock material, magma, which was intruded into the crust at great depth, as I said, probably between 5 and 10 kilometres down. During the mountain-building episode that took place when the two continents ground together, And it's one of a number of igneous rocks in this region which were probably formed around about the same time. The more famous one, of course, is the skidor granite, which occurs back of skidor and in silent gill, which is about the same age. And the Shap granite as well is also about the same age as this. As is, I should mention, a criffle on the other side of the Solway. They're all about the same age and they were all formed during this mountain building episode 400 million years ago. Igneous means... Igneous just means formed by fire, but what it really means in geological terms is formed for molten material, so things like granites and this rock here are formed from molten magma. Another sort of igneous rock is volcanic rock, like volcanic lava, which comes out of volcanoes, which is also molten. Correlating
1: this to Skidder, as you're going up the Ellock Pike Ridge, you get a similar kind of rock. Is that the same?
2: Yes, it's actually very similar to this. It's what geologists call a lamprophyre, which is a very potassium rich igneous rock. And yes, the igneous rock exposures at the bottom of the watches is the same sort of rock as this and formed at the same time. Well next stop,
1: well I suppose the summit, we're almost there. Well, we made it to the summit. A little bit of a uh, vertical exposure on the surface of the Skidder Slate. No cairn, uh, which is symptomatic of the nature of the rock. Despite there's plenty of rock, it doesn't constitute anything worthy of making a proper cairn. But the view, well, it's been denied us a great deal today. I can see Lord Seat and Broomfell. You can see a bit of grass more. Uh, but anything to the west is lost in the major fells. Yeah. If I'm looking towards the north, Skidor is a bit obscured, let's say. But I can see Latrig and I can see Longlands Fell. How about that? That tells you what you can't see. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and of course, Binsey is in view, and a little snippet of Bastenthwaite. Uh, but fundamentally... It's a great viewpoint on a good day. Many people come here often. Do you come here often, Ian?
2: Yes, I do. It's, it's my sort of uh, local fell, really. It's the easiest fell to get to from Maryport. <laughs> so I do come here very often, yeah. Right. It's become noticeably more popular in the last 10 years. I mean, when I first started coming up Sail Fell, when we first moved back to Cumbria, maybe 35 years ago, there were hardly even any tracks on Sailfell. There was just a very faint track over the summit, and that was it. But now, of course, it's, it's much more popular.
1: Right. I blame guidebooks myself. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yes. <laughs> <laughs> Today,
1: the view is very limited, to be quite frank, but what rock types would you be able to see generally from here?
2: Well, this is quite an interesting viewpoint because we're standing on Skiddor group, Skiddor slates, which, as I said, are the oldest rocks. But actually, from here, we can see the next rocks that Otley described what he called the green stones and porphyries if we look southeast in that direction we can see the Helvellyn Range on a clear day, we can't see it today, but the Helvellyn Range is made of these igneous volcanic rocks that we now recognise form the central belt of the Lake District the uh, which are now called the Borrowdale Volcanic Group and they're a thick sequence probably 5 or 6 kilometre thick sequence of lavas and ash which were laid down between about 455 and 450 million years ago as well as forming the central lakes there's a thin belt of volcanic rock to the north as well which is similar age to the Borrowdale volcanic rock and it's called the Acot volcanic group and Binsey which we see there and the northernmost part of the Colbeck fells are made of this volcanic rock this sequence of lavas
1: when we talk about the Borrowdale volcanics we're talking about the fells that make the Lake District a place for mountaineers.
2: Yes, that's right. The Bordel Volcanic Rocks, which form the central fells, are normally associated with a much more rugged topography than we get here in the northern fells. So here, around Skiddaw and the Lawton Fells, the outline of the fells tends to be relatively smooth. If we uh, go to the, the Bordel Volcanic Rocks, around Scarfell, Great Gable, those central fells around the head of Wasdale, for example, or the head of Ennerdale... They're all volcanic rocks, and they form these craggy, steep-sided fells. And there's a number of reasons for that, but one of the one of them is that the volcanic rocks tend to be much harder, so they're much more resistant to erosion. So when the area was glaciated, the glaciers tended to form uh, much more steep slopes and craggy outlines.
1: Well, we're standing on what is, in effect, the oldest rock in the area. Over our shoulder, the Borrowdale Volcanics, which is the next sequence yes. But ahead of us, looking northwest, we're looking at another time period.
2: Yes, we're looking out of the Lake District towards the West Cumbrian Plain and the Solway Plain, and we can see a ring of hills in the distance. We can see Muta, and we can see the Muta Quarry and the radio Mast at Muta. They're all a line of hills which are built of Carboniferous limestone. Which is much, much younger than the rocks we're standing on now. The Carboniferous limestone was laid down some 350 million years ago. And in fact, at one time, it would have covered the whole of the Lake District but it's been stripped away by erosion and now we only see it around the edges. The limestone was deposited in shallow marine conditions, a warm tropical sea, and we know that because the fossils that it contains, fossils like corals and so on. And if you go to Muta Quarry, the limestone there, you can find fossil corals.
1: We'll leave the breezy summit, be moved on by the breeze to the edge to the northwest, where I think there's some interesting feature to do with glaciation. We've come a very short way down from the summit, it's still on grass. I'm looking towards the north and the adjacent part of the fell is covered in gorse and bracken, which is all brown now, and there's some willow in the bottom there, which reminds me that the fell is named after that particular hollow and its propensity to grow willow. I can see Bastonthwaite Lake and Binsey. And although there's quite a strong breeze, uh, it's quite a calm point where we're standing here. And there's a flock of about 10 swaledales, swaddles, grazing with contentment adjacent to us. Now, we talked about Jonathan Otley. There's another figure in comparatively recent history who analysed the geology in a different way.
2: Yeah, it was a, a young man called Clifton Ward, James Clifton Ward. He was born in London, actually, in 1843, I think. And he was sent up to Keswick by the Geological Survey, which was part of the Ordnance Survey at the time. It was like an arm of the Ordnance Survey. He was sent up to Keswick to geological mapping in the Northern Lake District. He moved up to Keswick in 1869 or something like that. He was a young, extremely fit man, very enthusiastic and a fantastic field geologist. He learnt to recognise all the rocks in the area and he produced the most amazingly accurate maps of the Northern Lake District. In fact, I've got one at home, one of his hand-coloured maps. <laughs> and. The basic understanding of the geology of where the rocks are hasn't really changed much since Clifton Ward's time. As well as mapping the rocks, he took a great interest in glacial theory and he was careful to look out for what are called glacial erratics. These are boulders which have been carried by ice some distance from where they originate. And the northern fells, he soon realized, were covered in glacial erratics which seemed to have been carried from the central fells. So big blocks of volcanic rock sitting on places like here, like Fell, which is Skiddor Group. He realised that these could be used to reconstruct the patterns of ice flow in the Ice Age. The idea of glaciers was still in its infancy then. And Clifton Ward was a, a sort of midpoint between the old ideas of the diluvian theory, which was that there was, had been a huge flood, and the modern ideas of glacial theory, which explained everything in terms of glaciers. Clifton Ward came sort of halfway between those two, so he recognised that these boulders had been carried by ice, but he still believed in the idea that there had been a great flood at some point. (laughs) The point about the the flood idea is that uh, it tied in with the Bible. And don't forget, in the 18th century... People still had no idea about how old the Earth was. Until radiometric dating came along in the early 20th century, there was no conception of how many millions of years old the Earth was. So the idea of a giant flood sort of carried on from a biblical idea of a giant flood, and it was conveniently used by geologists at the time to explain things that they could otherwise not explain. So, why were great areas of the lowlands of Britain covered in what seemed to be deposits that had been laid down? by water. In fact, we now know they weren't laid down by water, they were laid down by ice. But the idea of a great flood, which had once covered the whole of the land, provided a convenient explanation for some of these features that people were recognising. And Clifton Ward, of course, was a very religious man. In fact, after he retired from doing his geological work, he went into the clergy. Sadly, he died very young in, in 1880, and he's buried in Keswick. So maybe his religious association caused his dilemma. Well, quite possibly. But, of course, everyone was religious then. I mean, um, Sedgwick, the famous geologist, Cumbrian geologist, was very religious and hated what Darwin had been saying about evolution.
1: They were great mates, but yeah. they were yes. <laughs> loggerheads yes. on yes, that exactly.
2: Road. You know, it certainly wasn't unusual that Clifton Ward was religious. In fact, it probably would have been more unusual if he'd been an atheist. Mm-hmm. But, yes, I think you're right. I think probably the theory of a flood did to some extent, help reconcile his geological ideas with his religious beliefs.
1: Well, we we'll go down the slope a little bit further in a bit of a hollow. Uh, there is a rather interesting agricultural feature. Well, I've come through the wall, which has got a considerable amount of quartz in it, which is rather distinctive. And I've come to a, a broad saddle in the ridge And north to south, across the saddle, are regular undulations, like corduroy feature across the ridge. And this is rig and furrow. Now, I noticed a bit on the summit, believe it or not. This is very unusual and such an elevated spot. What's the origin of
2: this, Ian? Well, it's interesting. I mean, people are f- more familiar with what they call medieval rig and furrow, which is seen a lot in, in the south of England, and the Midlands. But here it's different. This is what's called Napoleonic rig and furrow, or rig and furrow. And it came about because during the Napoleonic Wars, cereal prices became very high. And farmers, if there was enough soil, and the uplands were able to cultivate or improve land quite high up in the fells and on places like sail fell and other fells on the other side of the wither valley around lawton where the soil is quite good you get rig and furrow occurring at quite high elevations uh, what they did was they ploughed the land they cut down any uh, unwanted vegetation like bracken and win and so forth burnt it then they added lime and then they planted it I mean, they probably only got two or three years of oats or barley out of it before giving up. It's really not the sort of land you want to put to cereal. Times were hard. I mean, it's amazing to think that people were putting land like this to cereal cultivation. This period of land improvement in the uplands, as I said, coincided with the Napoleonic War. But it's part of a wider period of what's called enclosure, which started uh, in the mid-18th century and carried right on till about 1820. It's called parliamentary enclosure because Acts of Parliament were passed to allow the land to be taken from the Commons and essentially given to whichever landlord it was, statesman, farmer or whoever. Here in Wither and in Lawton, Parliamentary enclosure didn't happen till quite late. I think these walls are probably built around eighteen twenty, actually after the Napoleonic Wars. So it may well be that by the time they got this land to Oates, the price of cereal had already I got, dropped. I, I, I,
1: could t- I could tell you that because this wall cuts across the line of the Ridge and Yes. So there's
2: some on the other side. Yes, that's right. So it m- probably came later. As I said, the walls here in Withup and on the Lawton Fells around Wynlatter as well, we've got a lot of the walls built at the same time. And they're built of skidor group here because this is the rock that we're standing on. And it doesn't make great walling, to be honest. It's it's not fantastic. The sandstone beds in the skidor group tend to be blocky and are quite good for wall. And these quartz... As well, have been used here. But the more slaty mudstone material doesn't make good walling. It tends to break up very easily. It's very prone to frost action, freeze thaw action. So, if you go high on the fells where there's a lot of freeze thaw action, you often find skid or slate walls have just collapsed inwards because the stone's just broken up into fragments. It's
1: a classic one. When I mean, you're coming between Grisdale Pike and Hope Gill Head, that little ridge is just like that.
2: Yes, exactly. Yeah, the wall's just been completely destroyed by the weather.
1: This low quality of the Skidder Slate begs the question about Keswick, because I don't see much
2: evidence of Skidder Slate in the town. No, no, exactly. Even though the geology of Keswick, you know, the underlying geology is Skiddor Group, Skiddor Slate, it's not very good building material, so you don't see it, you know. It's not good for building house walls, and it's not good for making roofs off Slate, although it's called Slate, tends to be very low quality. It tends to break into irregular fragments rather than nice, clean slate that you get in other parts of the Lake District. It comes out to the jaws of Borrodale, the town. Yes, most of Keswick is built from volcanic rock, quarried in Borrodale or Honister or somewhere like that. So the walls we see generally around
1: the Lake District, they did haul the stone a great distance. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about where they would have got it and how it's identified?
2: They got it as close to where they were building the wall as possible. I mean, I guess the wallers were quite experienced at spotting where they could get stone. They probably saw small rock outcrops and they thought, yes, we can use this. So the fells around here are pockmarked by numerous tiny hollows, which are now more or less grassed over. But when you learn to recognise them, you realise these are tiny quarries, the little rivings that the wall builders were using to get stone.
1: Did they uh, blow it out or,
2: or did they lever it out? I think the widespread use of gunpowder didn't come till quite later on in the 19th century. It was certainly gunpowder was available, but I suspect most of the work was done by hand. Tough work. Yes, tough work, but the Skittle group, because, if you remember, when we looked at it before, we saw how it tends to break up quite easily. So I imagine with the right tools, it was probably relatively easy to to win the sort of stone they needed to build the walls.
1: I would have enjoyed shaking hands with a waller. (laughs) 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 Yeah,
2: to the wall builders, it made sense to transport the stone downhill to the wall rather than uphill to the wall. Wherever possible, they tended to quarry the stone Uh, at a higher elevation than the place they were building the wall. And then the stone would be moved down, either carried on the back of a pony or pulled by sledge. Well, we'll go a little bit
1: further along the ridge before we get to Lothwaite Ridge End. Uh, We'll discuss something else, I think, uh, geological. Well, we come to the lip of the slope. We've got a sudden slope on the eastward side of the fell, And below us, majestically spread out, is the great shining level of Bassenthwaite. Used to be called Bassenthwaite, sometimes called Bassenthwaite Lake, which is why always people say, How many lakes are there in the Lake District? No, there's only one Bassenthwaite Lake, (laughs) but that's rubbish. Anyway, we've got a view now across a landscape that talks about something completely different. What's that new thing?
2: Yes, the new thing is is the effects of glaciers and how, in fact, much of what we see in the Lake District landscape is the product of glaciation. The deep lake-filled valleys are the product of glacial erosion during the Ice Age, which ended about 11,500 years ago, and was at its peak about 25,000 years ago when the whole of the Lake District was covered in an ice cap. Some of the highest mountains, like Great Gable or Scarfell, might have stuck out above the top of the ice. You can imagine it would have been a, a thick ice cap at hundreds of metres of thickness. At other times, there were very active valley glaciers. The ice had retreated from most of the fell tops, but there were still active valley glaciers eroding deep valleys. Uh, and they were able to erode... Rock basins in the floor of the valleys, and these rock basins subsequently filled with water to give us the lakes we see today. And this is Bassenthwaite Lake, classic glacial lake. It's called a ribbon lake. It's very long and relatively thin because it occupies a glacially eroded valley, a glacially eroded trough. And we can't really see it in through the mist, but if we look further to the east, you can see the head of Derwent water as well. Quite. After the ice had melted, say, 11,500 years ago, 10,000 years ago, that would have been one long lake. Derwentwater and Bastonthwaite would have been one long lake. Since the ice melted, erosion has been carrying material down. Newlands Beck has been carrying material down from the fells, creating a big alluvial fan, which has spread right across the valley and split Derwent Water and Bassenthwaite into two separate lakes.
1: I'm reminded when you mention about the great body of water, in Storm Desmond 2015, the two lakes
2: almost joined up even then. Yes, the water levels rose so much that it almost became one lake again. Recent storms, recent flood events have really heightened people's awareness of the vulnerability of the Lake District landscape to flood events. And Bassinthwaite has played an important role in that regard because people have often asked, well, these last floods that we've had in the last 20 years have been so bad, but maybe there were floods just as bad in the past. There's nothing new about this. You know, the Lake District has always had floods. There have been historic floods in the 19th century in Cockermouth and places like that. Nothing new, but actually, Bassenthwaite has given us a a real clue that this isn't the case. This is something new. You can measure the intensity of a flood by how much material has been carried by the river because the faster the river flow, the more sediment it will carry. So sediment carried into the lake by flood events settles out on the bottom of the lake. The more sediment is carried in, the thicker those layers are. So we know from taking balls through the sediment at the bottom of Bassenthwaite Lake that the flood events of 2009 and 2015 were the biggest for at least 600 years. So the ice created the valley,
1: it created every valley, and it sculpted the mountain tops themselves, in a sense.
2: Yes, yes, that, that, that's true. I mean, when the Ice Age started, the last Ice Age started some 100,000 years ago, the glaciers were probably following... Valleys that had already been carved on the uplands of the Lake District by rivers in earlier times. So the original valley pattern, the radial valley pattern of the Lake District, probably owes its origin to radial drainage by rivers millions of years ago. But the ice followed those valleys and made them deeper. That's that's the point. The last glacial epoch in Earth's history started about 2.5 million years ago. And in the last 2.5 million years have been maybe 40 or 50 separate ice ages. Before that, we may have imagined the Lakeless it would have been a wooded upland area, and then successive glacial periods have eroded that away. As the breeze is still with us, the
1: daylight is not. It's giving way a little bit, intensified by the mantle of cloud. Uh, I think we'll head down the slope a bit and uh, get into the lee of it all and see what else we can find in the valley. Wonderful to come through that deer fence into this chapel wood. Oak trees and young oak trees, bird box there. It's a place full of life and energy and regeneration. And it's largely a result of having a deer fence to prevent those horrible little nibblers. <laughs> and it's created an environment that is just a joy to see. There were more places like this once.
2: Yes, the nearest place to here, which is similar, is Doddwood, just outside Lawton, near Thackthwaite, which is, again, a patch of oak woodland, probably medieval in age. We just don't know. But there, the deer fence has been rather less successful, and there's very little uh, regeneration of young oaks there, unlike here, where, as you said, here where... A bit of woodland management has cleared out some of the more mature trees to leave a a well-lit area, and as soon as you get light coming through the canopy, you get the oak saplings seeding and growing up.
1: The main river here is the Derwent, which means the watercourse, the river of the oak tree. And once, this whole landscape were covered, absolutely covered in
2: oak trees. There are two main factors which have caused the disappearance of woodland in this part of the Lake District. One is agriculture, which is the clearing of land for sheep and of course once you get sheep on land like this you don't get any woodland regeneration because they just eat the saplings straight away and the other reason is a clearance for making charcoal which was used extensively from the 16th century onwards for smelting metal there was a big smelting works which the german miners who came from the tyrol built in Keswick in the 16th century or the late 16th century and that used an enormous amount of wood and it's quite likely that huge areas of the northern fells were denuded of woodland during the hundred years or so when this smelter was active. We know from the mining records which are held in Augsburg in uh, Germany that um, wood was in such short supply that they were having to import wood from Ireland which is quite extraordinary to think in the 16th century that they were having to go to Ireland to get wood. (laughs) So this was the northern powerhouse. The area around Keswick, which was so rich in mines, was, in Elizabethan times, essentially the northern powerhouse. The smelting works uh, on the banks of the Greta near Keswick were the largest in Europe at the time, which probably means they were the largest in the world.
1: That's an awkward little tie on there. Anyway, well, we've come to an interesting spot. There's a yew tree. That's always a telltale. Come out of Chapel Wood, that's also another telltale. And hey, presto, we have the very bare base of a church. So there's very little stonework left, but you can
2: see the grand plan of this little church. It's a tiny church, isn't it, or what's left of it? There's a record of a church here in the 16th century, in the mid 16th century, ah. and then there's another record of it being rebuilt in the late 17th century, and I think about 1670. These remains here would date from the 1670 building, right? And I think it was a, what what they called the Chapel of Ease. Yes. So it was part of the Lawton and Withup chapelry. So the main church was in Lawton, and of mm. course that was too far away for people from Withup to go. So I think that that's why they built this chapel here. And then in 1866, they built the main St Margaret's Church at Withop, which is down on the other side of Sale Fell, at which point this became redundant. So I guess the stone was probably robbed to build walls or whatever.
1: Yeah, and you can see that this indicates that there was quite a substantial community requiring a church here.
2: The population in the 19th century would have been about 120 people. And Withup Mill and the Withup Valley, that would fill a church. But of course, now it's probably less. It's probably only 50 or so people at the most, I would say. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, there's thought to be a corpse road which runs round the side of Ling Fell. We can't actually see it from here yes. through the trees. But if you walk round Ling Fell, you'll have walked on that very well-defined path. And I assume that is the corpse road from Wither, which would have taken bodies to burial at, in Lawton. This is a a lived-in landscape and
1: we're looking at the vestige of a community that goes back hundreds of years. Now, talking about going back, I think it's time for quick-fire questions, Ian. And this is the chance for you to uh, dig into your memory box. What was your
2: first Lakeland memory? My first few years of life was spent in a house called Capelrig in Kentmere. Didn't move to Thackthwaite till later, but I think probably sitting by a beck in Kentmere with my parents as a very little child.
1: Uh, what have your favourite Lakeland fell from all the years of loving the Lake District?
2: I think probably Low Fell, the uh, Loweswater is probably my favourite fell. You get the most wonderful perspective from there, don't you? The views from Low Fell down over Cromett Water and Buttermere are probably the best in the Lake District, I think.
1: It's that mixture of pasture and woodland and craggy fell, and all very shapely, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. When you go on a long walk, where does your mind wander?
2: I think one of the great things about walking is that you can have two different states of mind. You can be uh, completely at one with your surroundings, not really thinking about anything. Your mind's not wandering, you're just absorbing stuff. And the other state of mind is one of sort of quite intense concentration where you're actually working out problems in your head in a way that you can't do when you're sitting at a desk. Absolutely. Is there a moment in history that,
1: given the chance to go back to, you'd like to inhabit?
2: Yes, I think the period at the end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century when people were beginning to understand ideas about the sublime Uh, and appreciate the beauty of the Lake District landscape and the first visitors were coming here and Coleridge and Wordsworth. That would have been the time, I think, that would have been most fascinating for me. Have you a Cumbrian hero or heroine, Dead or Alive? Well, I think Jonathan Otley actually has to fill that place. I mean, I I think he's a sort of unsung hero. He's something that no one outside Cumbria will have heard of, really, but I think he played such an important role in Cumbrian geology, and he was such a fascinating man, a sort of self-taught and nature lover that, uh, yeah, I think Jonathan Otley would be the person.
1: Uh, have you a particular season in the year where Lakeland really comes to life in your spirits?
2: For me, it's early spring. I think, I think um, end of April, May is the time that I, th- I love the Lake District the best. Everything's sort of bursting into life. Birds are singing. The green of the trees is that, that sort of beautiful fresh green that you get at the end of April and the beginning of May, which rapidly goes darker as the summer wears on. Uh, and also the time of year when we often get the best weather in the Lake District as well.
1: Yeah, April can be absolutely amazing, can't it? Have you a favourite
2: view? Uh, well, I think the view we talked about before, the view from either Southfoot Fell or Low Fell, down over Loweswater, Crummettwater and Buttermere is the most sublime view, with the Skiddaw Group fells in the foreground, and then looking into the distance, the high fells of the Bordell Volcanics. Could you describe your perfect Lakeland day? Um, well, I'd probably um, choose something like a long day out fell walking around Cromot or Buttermere with lunch on the top of a fell somewhere, maybe on the top of Grassmoor or maybe on the top of uh, High Style or Red Pike, followed by a leisurely descent uh, and then a pint in the Kirkstyle Inn. And possibly uh, fish and chips as well. (laughs) Kirkstall Inn uh, was the pub where I first had a pint of beer.
1: You'd go to bed a happy man.
2: Yes, and if the weather was good, I might even get a swim in the lake as well. (laughs) Okay. If
1: you were Prime Minister for the day, and uh, you want to influence the future of the landscape and heritage of, of Cumbria and the Lake District, is there one thing you would like to institute on that day?
2: I think restoring the funding to the uh, Lake District National Park Authority to what it was ten years ago would be a start. It will be monumental. I mean to say, how do people expect this national
1: park to be cared for mm. on the poultry tapering down there is now? We don't normally talk about politics on Country Stride, but honestly, that is a horror story. Yes, absolutely. When the day comes, and uh, let it be many years to come, family and friends, carry your ashes or your body somewhere. Where might that be?
2: Well, I think it's probably going to have to be Lawton Church or Loweswater Church, one or the other. I don't mind which. I, I'm not a, a Christian, I should point out, but those are the churches that played some role in my childhood life. And my parents used to take me to a Christmas carol service at Loweswater Church, and uh, I know people who used to frequent Lawton Church. So they're the sort of churches that uh, I guess are closest to me in terms of my upbringing. Churches are all about community and
1: continuity, and I can understand that. Well, Ian, it's been wonderful to be with you, and I've grasped a few more nuggets of knowledge <laughs> about the geology of the Lake District. Your fabulous book that you wrote with Bruce Yardley. And
0: Stuart Holmes.
1: Stuart Holmes with the Majestic Photography. And it's a book
2: I heartily recommend. Thank you for those kind words, and I've really enjoyed today. It's been great.
0: Journey's end, night falling, and we're approaching the car park at Withert Mill After mark a fine circular wander over one of my favourite fells.
1: It's a lovely little hill. It was very blowy up there, but we are now just coming down in almost calm. Gentle little dampness in the air, but it's not bad, and the light is failing. But it's been a fascinating day.
0: Yeah, it was lovely to put all of the rocks in order there, these three groups and actually to be able to witness them and the intrusions. I hadn't quite understood that before. They're kind of pushing up, aren't they, through the established sediment to make these little areas that come out on the fells and surprise you, I suppose, when
1: you're wandering around. What staggered me, a bit of quartz we saw in the Skid Slate. That was intruded when it was 10 kilometres deep in the mantle of the earth. That's staggering. Yeah. And then you think the same rocks that skiddo Slate is still... 10 kilometers down somewhere else yeah Uh, so we see the surface of that and the shapes of the hills but this is part of a a monumentally deep mantle crust of the earth it's just mind-boggling it's just wonderful to be with somebody who's got a handle on it all
0: I thought that was also really interesting, standing and looking out towards Scotland. We didn't really see it today, did we? But knowing that effectively, we were either side of this great old divide, continental Mm. divide. Yeah, it's amazing. And skidder slate, another interesting thing that I learned is just how poor it is as a building material. And I, again, I kind of knew this. One of my neighbors has got some skidder slate on his roof and he's trying to get some new skidder slate at the moment. There really isn't much to be had because They knew even back then that it it wasn't good stuff. But it does explain why Keswick itself doesn't look so dissimilar to, for example, Coniston. So if you go
1: onto eBay and ask for slate, make sure it's not slate.
0: (laughs) That's it. It's a
1: very, very good
0: practical message to take away from today's (laughs) podcast. Right, we will name-check the book. Uh, So this is called The Lake District, Landscape and Geology. Ian Francis, one of the three writers, you mentioned the other two earlier, Mark, and is published by the crowwood press Uh, and i think both you and i are recommending it it's a yeah fantastic publication we are on episode number 91 right and for 90 previous episodes they are all at www.countrystride.co.uk they are all completely free we don't charge for them but if you like these podcasts and would like us to continue doing them you can support us uh, in one of three ways you can recommend these to somebody else just pass on the fact that there's a fantastic podcast relating to the lake district uh, you can buy any of our publications and at this moment in time there are three so that's the Threlkeld walking companion the Oldswater walking companion and the Oldswater way official guide any of those sales help to fund us doing this uh, and actually, I'm working now at the moment, Mark, as are you, on our fourth, the Ambleside Walking Companion. I'm having loads of fun on that. The walks are done so far, including the other day. Got the bus down to Windermere, Orist Head, and we've got a great walk from there over the, I mean, I call them the Three Sisters of Troutbeck. Yeah. But yeah, Yoke, Illbell,
1: Frozick, then Cordale Moor. Fulfit Crag, Cordale, yeah. Moor. All the way down. Yeah, and then back down the Stockgill Valley. Just show if you can use public transport intelligently, you don't have to get in your car. In no. fact, a good half of the walks in the guide require you to get on a bus.
0: I'm really enjoying it actually. I didn't know the landscape between Orist Head and Trout Beck particularly well, but it's nice walking, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, you go up Dubs
1: Lane and up onto Garbin. That's Great it.
0: little walk. Mm, yeah, it's very good. Right, so that's coming up. And the third way is if you don't want to buy any of those books, but you want to contribute anyway, Patreon. If you go to our website, you can dedicate as little as two pounds a month to us which is less than the price of a um, uh, bounty bar a bounty bar no,
1: they've just uh, removed
0: them i think <laughs> from chocolate boxes <laughs> <but> <laughs>
1: yeah, that's what into remind them I, mean. I think
0: it, that might be more than the price of a bounty <laughs> bar and inflation really is running away from us
1: <laughs> we are next up mark what are we doing uh oh we're doing a little bit of a route that you did about a month or so uh, ago yes. the dales highway and that'll be superb a wonderful journey
0: yeah we're being a bit naughty we're leaving Cumbria for a very short space of time and then we're walking back into it into Dentdale with
1: two of your old friends I think Mark. the Grogan's yes the Grogan's yeah but it's interesting we've done that trick before haven't we when we did the Pennine Way from Langdon Beck, we came into
0: Cumbria from Durham. And actually, more recently than that, we've done the same again coming down into Dentdale. Oh, yes. On another long-distance walk, which yeah, was the, the Dales Way. The actual Dales Way, the original one. So We've got that coming up, so we'll be going to Dale and the fabulous little church there, which has a memorial to many of the navvies who built the Carlisle Settle line. And we'll be walking over the flanks of Wernside mm-hmm. uh, back down to... Um, Dent Town. Dent Town. But from us for today in lovely Withup Valley, we're saying goodbye for now.